Hello, my name's Stephen Vag. I'm uh, doing the audio commentary for King of the Coral Sea. Why am I doing this, you might ask? Well, just for the sheer hell of it. It's a uh, Coro lockdown. I'm stuck here looking for projects to do. And um, I've always liked this movie. Um, I have a soft spot for it. It's not it, absolutely not a perfect film, not by any means. But it was one of the few Australian movies made in Australia in the 1950s. There's Chips Rafferty, a star of the show. Australia's probably only real film star, as in a film star of Australian films at the time and he was one of the prime creative forces behind this uh, movie along with the director Lee Robinson. Um, I'll, I'll talk about all these people who are listed in the cast there but of course the probably the biggest star of that film is the beautiful location work. Um, this was shot in Thursday Island just on the north tip of Australia up at, uh, up at Cape York in between uh, Cape York and Papua New Guinea. Um, a gorgeous part of the world, beautifully shot here by uh, an expert camera crew. That man, Ross Wood, Ross Wood, the cinematographer, did a a, love, a lovely work. This was, um, I think there were only two films made in Australia this year. It was, uh, it's, it's never easy to make movies. It's never easy to make movies in Australia, but in the 1950s, it was virtually impossible. Even though Australia um, produced arguably the world's first feature-length film, A Story of the Kelly Gang, um, by the by, the 1950s, it was only turning out one or two films a year. On one hand, it was sort of bewildering. Um, Australians were avid cinema goers, and television was not introduced until 1956. Uh, we had had a pretty decent industry in the 1930s. In the 50s, we had a thriving documentary and radio industry, which supported a pool of talented writers, actors, and film crew. And we had some still working people who were experienced at directing still hanging around. However, there are also uh, numerous obstacles which in the end proved near insurmountable. I mean, the thing that really killed off the Australian feature film industry from the 30s was World War II. Um, it was considered a non-essential industry and, it, and uh, it lost a lot of its um, personnel and equipment and the, and the film industry never really recovered. There was also, uh, we also had a small domestic population. There was lots of competition from Hollywood and Britain. There was a feeling that Australians would really prefer to see overseas stories rather than Australian stories. And there was overseas control of distribution and, and exhibition. After World War II, there was a bit of a false dawn revival of the industry. There were a number of successful features made in Australia using American and British money, and you may have heard of some of these. Um, there was The Overlanders, which was a big hit, which actually made a star of Chips Rafferty, who's who's the man there. Oh, isn't this stunning? It's stunning, this beautiful. There's something also particularly beautiful about um, pearl luggers at the time. So I'm going to hop in forth, back and forth between some prepared notes I've written and just actually watching watching the movie. And then there's A Dead Body, which is always good. good. This film starts with a pretty good bang. They're out there looking for pearls and they discover a dead body. It's a good start to a film. And also helps that most of this movie, I think almost all of it, was shot on location in the Torres Strait around Thursday Island. And also with some footage on Green Island, which is uh, just near Cairns. Uh, the director, Lee Robinson, had a documentary background. Most of the crew worked in documentaries. So they were very used to getting out there, getting rough and dirty, going to, inverted commas, exotic locations, close inverted commas, and getting some really good footage. That's Lloyd Burrell there. He was a very well-known radio actor at the time. He was actually a New Zealander. I think he plays a Malay here, but he's, um, I think he's Malay. He's uh, He was part Maori. Liberal was only in his late 20s when he made this role. He always kind of looked about 20 years older than he was. He died very young too. It was very sad. He died when he was only 31 uh, of a heart attack on the ship over to England where he hoped to do his career. Liberal, um 
pops up in a, quite a few films shot in Australia or cast out of Australia because, I mean, look at him. Like, he's very castable. He had a great speaking voice. He was in a film called uh, Long John Silver, which also features Rod Taylor, who's in this, and that was made with American Money in Australia after this. And he was in a film called His Majesty O'Keefe, which starred Burt Lancaster. Some of you may have seen it, um, yeah, that, and that has a few Australian actors in it. Uh, he was probably best known at the time, though, for working in radio. And he was also on stage. He was in an early production of Summer of the 17th Doll. There you go. Bit of trivia. There's going to be lots and lots of trivia in this commentary. So after World War II, you had you had a few uh, Austra- you know Australian films with American and British money. Overlanders, which I've talked about with, with Rafferty. Also Smithy, a biopic of Charles Kingsford Smith, directed by Kenji Hall. And Bush Christmas, that was another film with... Um, with Chips Rafferty, and those films were all quite successful, and people thought, oh, okay, the Australian film industry is going to come back. But then there are a number of of films which didn't do so well. There was a Eureka Stockade, which starred Chips Rafferty as Peter Lawler, um, and also films like Kangaroo, the Hollywood film with Maureen O'Hara and Lewis Miles, directed by Lewis Milestone, which didn't do that well. So the Australian uh, overseas people sort of lost enthusiasm in Australia as a production centre. And, uh, lo- and the local filmmakers didn't really pick up the slack until the late 1960s, and that came about through government investment, really. It wasn't a total desert in that time, though. There were some local movies made during this period, and the most notable of which were Lee Robinson and Chips Rafferty, who made King of the Coral Sea. This was their second film. They made they made quite they made actually quite a few films. They were definitely the most productive Australian filmmakers of the 1950s. Um, Lee Robinson, who directed this and he co-produced it, he had served in the Army uh, where he'd actually worked in the Army History Unit under John Cleary. John Cleary, the novelist, best known for writing The Sundowners and the Scobie Malone books. I interviewed him once and he said, oh, he knew Lee Robinson because Lee Robinson later, and Chip Strafferty, made a film of uh, John Cleary's novel Dust in the Sun. That was actually, I think, their fourth film they made, and King of the Coral Sea is their second. And John Cleary said, oh, yeah, Lee Robinson worked under me in the Army. A small world. Um, Lee Robinson was also a radio scriptwriter, and after the war, he moved into the Department of Information Film Unit, which was like a government film arm that made documentaries. It later became Film Australia. And Lee Robinson wrote and directed documentaries uh, such as Namajira the Painter about Albert Namajira and Outback Patrol, Crocodile Hunters, and The Pearlers. They were um, really good documentaries, about sort of 10 minutes long, and they'd occasionally put them in the front of movies at the cinema you'd go watch a movie and you'd have a few supporting features and sometimes they would be a documentary that lee robinson would direct that's elma 80 uh, she's the female lead um gorgeous person really nice person too i interviewed her on the phone for the book i wrote on rod taylor which is kind of why i'm doing this i wrote a biography on rod taylor so i researched a bit of the making of this movie uh elma 80 was the one non-professional importer of the of, of the cast. Um, people like Chips Rafferty, Lloyd Burrell, Rod Taylor, who we're going to meet very soon. There he is. Hey, Rod. Uh, Charles Ting. Well, they were all professional actors. However, the female lead, Ilma, uh, I guess you could call her the ingenue. Oh, that actor there, Francis C. Chin. Oh, sorry, I've mispronounced the name. She was not a professional actor. She was a nurse at Torres Strait Hospital. Um, but they were amateurs, and Ilma Audi was an amateur. She was a model. She'd done a bit of amateur theatre, uh, a bit of nightclub work in the days when nightclubs were quite different, and she was sort of plucked from relative obscurity to star in this film. Um, 
it's kind of unusual that there were a lot of female actors working in radio and stage at the time. And I just imagine in 1953 when this was made, they would have been quite annoyed that, you know, like the one decent role in this really, you know, one, the one feature film made that year went to a novice really. But part of the reason was, is that um, Lee Robinson and Chip Strafferty, their first film called The Phantom Stockman, they had used another unknown and they'd done quite well with it. I think her name, um, the female lead of that film was called Jeanette Elphick and she was a model like Elmer Ady and she was well received in The Phantom Stockman and then she went on to Hollywood off the back of The Phantom Stockman and had a decent Hollywood career under the name of Victoria Shaw. She changed her name to Victoria Shaw. She married Roger Smith who was in 77 Sunset Strip and um, her best known role was probably the uh, Eddie Dutch Dukan story. Apologies, I've mispronounced that, but she was an Australian actor. So I think you know when um, when Robinson and Rafferty made their second film, which was this one, I thought, hey, that worked out well. Let's do it again. I also think that producers and directors sometimes like to discover an unknown. You know, like that's kind of a it's a groovy thing for them to do. Uh, yes, I have used the word groovy. I apologise. You know, they they like that novice of. I, I found this model and I turned her into a movie star. Maybe they liked having control over something. But I think she's really good in this film. I think she's, she's, you know, she's fresh faced. She's got the right look. She matches really well with Charles Tingle, who's her love interest. She has a really nice bond with Chips Rafferty. And it's a shame she didn't do any more acting. I, you know, I don't think I don't really don't think she was into it that much. Um, she, you know, I, I talked to her and she, she had she had a great time doing it. But she got she um she got married and started a family soon after. And, uh, and went on to other things. Chips Rafferty giving her a slap on the backside there. I guess that's <laughs> of the time. I don't know. I can't imagine doing it with uh, my daughter. But anyway. But, um, yeah, so this, this again, uh, this is all shot on Thursday. Aren't they? And it looks terrific. I mean, simple simple two-hander scenes or three-hander scenes. But just by the sheer fact that it's on location, it just raises the value of the film that much higher. Um, Rod Taylor plays an American in this film, and he, he was an American. It was kind of weird that he was an Australian actor, but yet he was, in his first Australian role, he played an American, and, and that would actually be a recurring feature throughout his career in that he would um, very rarely play Australians. Now, this was this today, that would be very unusual. However, in Australia at the time, it was quite common for Australian actors to not play Australians. Bear with me, because mostly, mostly you would work on in theatre and radio, and in those theatre and radio in Australia in the 1950s, they were prominently did versions of overseas stories, you know, particularly American and British. So to work in radio, you had to be pretty good at accents, in particular British or American accents, and Rod Taylor was very good at an American accent. Lee Robinson, I interviewed Lee Robinson for the book on Rod, and he told me he deliberately created this character, Rod Taylor's character, to be an American, to appeal to the American audience. Oh, that's Charles Tingwell there, beloved icon Charles Bud Tingwell, uh, who sort of later became famous as a sort of character actor, actor you know, on a homicide. He was a guest star on every single show going, a really good actor, lovely man. I interviewed him too. But this was sort of during the early phase of his career when he was a hot, spunky leading man. Indeed, when this film was made, it, it, um, the trade papers at the time referred to Charles Tingwell as probably Australia's best feature film bet for stardom, uh, in part because he was good-looking, he had the voice and he could act, but also he'd, he'd uh, just made a movie in Hollywood himself. Bud Tingwell actually went to Hollywood before Rod Taylor, 
um, Charles Tingle had gone with Chips Rafferty to appear in a film called The Desert Rats that was made in Hollywood by 20th Century Fox. And that was um, that was sort of an unofficial follow-up to uh, The Desert Fox. Sorry, so he was in The Desert Rats, he was, and he was, which was a follow-up to The Desert Fox, which is a biopic about Rommel, and it was starring James Mason, and he had James Mason back as Rommel. And The Desert Rats was about Australian soldiers in, during the Rats of Tobruk in World War II. Um, there, and when they made it, the, the star of that film was actually an Englishman, well, Welshman, uh, Richard, Richard Burton, and the co-star is, is Robert Newton, who is English, and uh, Richard Burton plays a you know an English officer of the Australians, which is, is a thing that didn't happen, and with Robert Newton as a Britisher who had listed, enlisted with Australians, again, which was kind of rare, but I guess the, it's Richard Burton and Robert Newton were quite famous and and but they uh, uh 20th century fox said oh you know we really need kind of need some australians in this movie so they they flew out um chips rafferty and and bud tingwell uh who had been who had both been in in a few films i mean chips rafferty was was quite famous at the time because he had been in films like the overlanders and bush christmas but also in films like kangaroo and bud tingwell was an up-and-coming leading man so um bud tingwell had been to hollywood they actually apparently 20th century fox offered him a seven-year contract but he turned it down i mean when it's a say seven-year contract really it's a contract with options for seven years we don't meet him right yet at the moment it's all it's all rod taylor um playing um, Chips Rafferty's sort of offsider. And I'm, I'm going to give spoilers about the film's ending. Man, gosh, you're listening to the audio commentary, you would have seen the film, is that it's, um, you know, I think Rod Taylor's great. I think he's perfect in the role. He's, you know, he plays a two-fisted, tough American guy because the role was apparently written for Rod Taylor. So, of course, it suits him down to a T. Dramatically, though, I, I feel he's underutilised. When you're watching the movie, I've seen the film a few times now, so apologies, I'm going to sort of make some sort of script editing suggestions to it, which is totally pointless, but it just goes to the problem with this is that the, the character isn't really needed in the film. Like, everything his character does in this movie could be done by Chips Rafferty or Charles Tingwell. He, it would have made, he would have earned his keep as a character if Rod Taylor had been the baddie. Um, you know, and you know, and you could totally see how that would have worked if Rod, you know, if Rod Taylor had been in love with Elmer Ady and Elmer Ady falls for Bud Tingwell. I'm, I'm totally getting ahead of myself here. Apologise, but it's, just, it's I always think that when I watch this movie, like they should have used him, used him more. But as it, it's, it's just kind of weird. Like Rod Taylor does all this cool stuff. Like he has a fight with Lloyd Burrell and and you know hangs around the island and has some good lines. But really, he he could have he could have if he wanted to cut the character out. You could have, you know, which is it's just kind of odd. Anyway, I do love this scene because it's the uh, the police of Torres Strait Island region. Um, they go, look, look, Chips Rafferty, we've got this uh, case going on, and someone's turned up dead, and there's an illegal immigration racket going on. And can you can you solve it for us? <laughs> so you know, sorry, <laughs> I know, I know they need to get Chips involved. I always thought that was slightly lazy writing too. Like, I mean, you easily could have fixed it. Like the person who was dead should have been like a, a former employee of Chips Rafferty or something. And, and he turned up down. So Chips is a bit of a suspect. So, that, so he's got to investigate to clear his name. I know. I apologize. I'm like, I'm script editing this film and it's like almost 70 years old. But, um, but I do think dramatically the film was a bit wonky and the critics at the time sort of commented on that they, they, and they didn't suggest fixes, but I'm suggesting fixes, you know, which is utterly pointless, but just wanted to raise it anyway. 
the the one thing that this film was unanimously acclaimed for was its uh, photography, and deservedly so. Like the photography really is world class, as is often the case, I think, of Australian films. You you know, you watch them even even back in the nineteen twelve nineteen tens. The photography is spectacularly good. I think um, a couple of reasons for that. One is just Australian landscape really is really very cinematographic cinematographer friendly but also cinematographers have more of a chance to practice their craft and say writers or directors because they could always get work you know filming documentaries or ads or whatnot whereas it was harder for writers and directors okay this is reg lie here um reg lie was a very familiar face to uh, audiences of the 1950s. He was constantly at work, I think, in part because he was just so easily castable. I mean, there's always roles and things for scungy little men, you know, like he can always play the baddie like he does in this or the town drunk or, or you know, like a the murder suspect or something like that. And, and even though Australia didn't make that many films in the 1950s, they did make a few. And Reg Light pops up in pretty much all of them. Eventually, um, there he is, perving on the picture of, of, of Charles Dingle. <laughs> uh, eventually, like uh, all Australian actors, Reg Lai had to go over to overseas to find work. That happened with pretty much all the leads in this film, except Ilma Aidy, who didn't become a professional actor. Reg Lai, Lloyd Burrell, Chips Rafferty, Rod Taylor, Bud Tingwell, they all went overseas. Like They'd either go to Hollywood or to England to find work, because that, that's how little work there was. Uh, in the late 50s and 1960s. Uh, and Reg, Reg Lai too. Anyway, so Taylor, there he is, being, sending Reg Lai scurrying out. Again, something which really Chips Rafferty could, could do. But anyway, it's really fun to to see them to see them together. He's a good actor, Reg Lai. You know, you know, like he's a type. He's a type. He's he's fun. And, um, and yeah, and it's fun to see him with... Uh, with Chip Strafferty. Chip Strafferty was a, was a type two. He was born in 1909 and he, um, and he, uh, was born in Broken Hill and he did a few odd jobs, you know, all, all around, all over the place. You know, he's, he was a depression era kind of person. So he had to do whatever he could to earn a living and he sort of fell into acting and his breakthrough was, uh, he had a support role in a film called 40,000 Horsemen, which is directed by Charles Chevelle, 19, 19- and um, he sort of got that he was sort of the comic relief and you look at him and like he's a real he's a real unique Australian type I mean I don't know that many people who look like Chip Strafferty but I I just didn't know the type most Australians do I think he was more common back in the 1950s than he than he than he is now but there's a certain part of that laconic Aussie Bushman and he was a good actor he wasn't he didn't have the largest range in the world and he couldn't do, he wasn't very good at accents or playing like, you know, playing, I don't know, Shakespeare or something like that. He, he Which which did mean that he, for instance, had trouble sustaining a stage career or a radio career. You know, someone like Rod Taylor or Lloyd Burrell or Charles Ting, well, they could play all sorts of roles and change their voices and accents. And Chip Strafferty couldn't do that. But what he did have was presence and charisma. And within his narrow range, he, he his performances were, were quite quite varied i mean i think especially as towards the end of his career like if you've ever seen wake in fright the 1971 movie he's fantastic in that but also in an episode of the tv series spy force which is sort of sort of, sort of he sort of plays a colonel kurtz type figure um and he's, he's just really really good really really good actor just not a huge range but he sort of became a film star not so much through the Forty Thousand horsemen that made him known and it was a catchy sort of role same with rats of tobruk which came along in 1944 he sort of 
played a similar sort of part. That was the sort of comic relief person. But he was picked to star on The Overlanders. And um, that was a big success. I think I remember Hedda Hopper referred to him as Australia's Gary Cooper, which isn't quite, you know, I think she was trying to convey to Americans what he was like. I don't think Gary Cooper is a very approximate example because Chip Strafferty was never great in romantic roles. Indeed, he was very self-conscious about that. But um, but he, he was more like maybe Slim Somerville, maybe a better, a better comparison. And he was put under contract to Ealing Studios. And they, you know, with the Overlanders was such a hit, they thought, oh, great, we'll, we'll, have chips, we'll make a whole bunch of Chips Rafferty movies. There's Bud Tingwell there, being more conventionally handsome leading man. And uh, Rafferty, was in, but Rafferty was in Bush Christmas, which did really well. But then he did Eureka Stockade, where he played Peter Lawler, and generally felt to be miscast, and he's pretty miscast. And that, didn't, that was a bit of a box office disappointment. And so too was Bitter Springs, which happened in 1950, where Rafferty was well cast, but I think the film was probably a bit too much of a downer for the general public so in the early 1950s Rafferty was like oh okay like technically I'm a film star but he was it was it was sort of a little bit hard for him to find work because because he couldn't easily do radio like the others or theater um so he thought well I better I better try to get some movies going myself which is actually an attribute of a lot of Australian Australian movie stars you know even from Mel Gibson to Rod Taylor to um even Errol Flynn, there there seems to be, for whatever reason, a bit of a, a self-starter aspect. If people aren't happy with the roles they're getting, you know, they, they go and um, initiate their own projects. And so that's what he did. He came across Lee Robinson on radio. One of the shows that Chips Rafferty could do on radio was a show called Chips, Story of the Outback. So Chips Rafferty could play himself on radio, which is like an adventure series. And most of the scripts for that were written by Lee Robinson. Uh, and who I talked about, who was a documentary filmmaker, but who continued, who just sort of supplemented his earnings um, working radio. And Lee Robinson became friendly with Chips Rafferty, and Chips Rafferty sort of said, you know, I'd really like to make my own movies. And Lee Robinson said, me too. And they'd actually both been working on separate projects. Um, Rafferty wanted to get a film going about um, immigration problems called The Green Opal. He also wanted to make TV movies, but he hadn't been able to get traction with them. And Lee Robinson had a, a feature film treatment that he was trying to get happening. It was called Saturday, Saturday to Monday, and that was about set during World War II about German POWs who take over Fort Pinchgut in um, Sydney Harbour and hold the town to ransom. And if that sounds a bit familiar, that treatment was eventually filmed about uh, in the late 50s as a film called The Siege of Pinchgut with Aldo Ray. Um, Lee Robinson wasn't involved with it by then; it had been greatly rewritten. But um, but you know, if if you enjoy this film, I definitely that's that's a film worth checking out too. Um, so the two men got together and they sort of said, "Hey, you know, you want to make feature films? I want to make feature films. Let's make feature films." You know, and and they were they were smart about it. I I really admire the way that Chips Rafferty and Lee Robinson went about it. They they sort of sat down and went, "Okay, well, okay, what can we do?" What are our strengths? You know, okay, we're, we're stuck out in Australia. Um, it's really hard to make a movie here. Um, and we're also quite inexperienced when it comes to, say, writing drama, like Lee Robinson had written a fair amount of um, radio scripts, but he hadn't written many feature film scripts. I mean, not many people have. They said, well, we can't afford the rights to buy a novel or something like that. Um, but what do we have in our favour? Well, firstly, Lee Robinson had directed a few documentaries, so they knew lots of film crew. Uh, he wasn't very experienced with actors, but he had some experience with actors. He'd made a, uh, a short documentary called Double Trouble, which was about immigration. 
uh, and then it had some actors in it. So he had a little bit of experience. He also had Chip Rafferty, you know, who knew how to act. And they also knew a fair few actors, so they thought. And they had Chip Rafferty. They had Chip Rafferty, who was an internationally recognised person, and they could, and and the two of them, and Lee Robinson could direct, and Chips Rafferty could star, and both of them could produce, and they could write it together, so they could save money that way. So, and they also knew that they'd, um, with Lee Robinson's documentary experience, they go, okay, we can give, what can we give that other people can't? Well, we can give them Chips Rafferty, and we can give them interesting locations. So they were really, they were really, really smart about it. They thought, okay, well, so what, what can we give? What, how can we tackle Hollywood? Let's not tackle Hollywood head on. Let's give them stuff that Hollywood can't give them. One is Chips Rafferty. You know, he wasn't a major star, but he's still a pretty recognisable name. And the other one was Australian Locations. And Charles Tingwell, uh, he said once in an interview that their method was to look at, look at a square on the map, you know, in terms of latitude and longitude, find the most interesting location they could and find a story to go with it. And you know what? That wasn't that, that was actually quite a sensible plan. And they had success with it for a period of time, but then when they broke their own rules and stopped playing to their strengths, that's when the team came undone. But anyway, that, that was down the track. Um, their first film was called The Phantom Stockman, which I have mentioned before. And the exotic location for that one was the Australian Outback. And Lee Robinson knew that well because he'd made some documentaries there, and it was also um, they could they could give a good role for for Chips Rafferty. He played a sort of he played a man called the Tribesman, and he had an Aboriginal sidekick. It was sort of like a meat pie western, and they filmed it out in location. At the time, there was this weird government rule that um, that you couldn't form a business worth more than ten thousand pounds unless it was essential and filmmaking was not considered essential. So I, I don't know why that was there. Maybe it was to fight inflation or something. It was just a really annoying red tape. But what it meant was their first film had to be made for under £10,000. You know, I, I don't even think that they might have been able to raise more than that. But they had to, you know, they had to do something low budget. But they figured, okay, we'll just go out to the, we'll go out to the outback and film something there and we'll make a film for £10,000. I've seen the budget for The Phantom Stockman in Lee Robinson's papers at the National Film and Sound Archive and the budget comes to something like nine hundred and. £9,999.97. And so I got the feeling that maybe that budget is a bit fake or something, just so it, just so it came in under the, under the line. Um, the Phantom Stockman, I have seen The Phantom Stockman. It's not a, it's not a great film, I'll be upfront. It's really, it looks great though. It looks great because of the locations and Chip Rafferty is great in it. And it has some interesting characters. And Jeanette Orphick is, is, is quite effective in her role. And so, you know, she used that to springboard the Hollywood career that I've mentioned called um, as, as Victoria Shaw. Um, and it, the film did well. The film did well. They'd been smart. They'd played to the strengths. They kept their costs down and they'd made an action orientated film because they knew action was a genre that, that tends to sell internationally. You know, they could have made a comedy, but their background wasn't really in comedy and comedies tend to only appeal to a domestic market. Of course, there are exceptions to it, but generally as a, as a rule of thumb, that's true. Uh, and the film did well. It, it made its money back. It wasn't a huge money maker, but um, Robin, Lee Robinson said it got its cost back within three months, which is pretty good. It's pretty good. And it certainly encouraged them to make their second film, which was which was this one. So for King of the Coral Sea, they followed the same the same philosophy as they did for the Phantom Stock when they went, okay, what are our strengths? What can we do? Let's pick an exotic location and build the story around that. And for this one, they picked the beautiful Torres Strait. Look at it, it's gorgeous. 
It's gorgeous there. Incidentally, it's kind of a shame that this film isn't in colour. Colour was becoming increasingly common in 1953, but the budget wasn't enough to allow for that. Um, they'd, they'd relaxed that silly capital <laughs> restriction, that £10,000 rule that they had for Phantom Stockman. That had been released, thank goodness, and the budget for this film was about £25,000. Uh, and because the Phantom Stockman had been a success, they were able to raise that relatively quickly. Lee Robinson said he had to sell his house to fund the Phantom Stockman. I don't know if that's true sometimes, but um, maybe it is. I mean, £10,000 was a lot of money back in, in the 50s. But with this one, because the first one had been successful, it was easier for them to raise money for for this one. So they thought, okay, what... What's an, what's an exotic location? Let's do something on the Torres Strait. And they knew the area, Lee Robinson knew the area especially well because he'd made the documentary called The Perlers, which came out in 1949. That's easily available on YouTube and is worth watching. Again, it's beautifully shot like this one. Uh, and they come up with a story. They go, and the story, this one they had about, you know, the, the story is about a... Um, a murder mystery, really, and it gets tied up with an illegal immigration racket. Now, uh, immigration was on their minds, I think, as, as I previously mentioned, Chips Rafferty tried to get up a story about immigration called The Green Opal. And Australia was a bit immigration obsessed in the 1950s. One could argue it's still obsessed a bit with it now. Uh, we had a thing called the White Australia Policy, which basically you could only move to Australia if you had enough white blood. Uh, it's a topic that is quite sensitive and controversial now. At the time in the 50s, um, pretty much the whole population were in support of it. It's got to be said. Uh, that changed over the course of time, and by the end of the 60s, it was it was wound up. Um, so, so, yes, yeah, so this film does have a... Yeah, you could say like it has the values of its time. I'll put it that way when it comes to immigration. But it, yeah, like I'll say, it does have a, a racist slant. Um, the villain turns out to be you know the coloured person. Of course, there is a white one, but you know all the heroes are white, and so on and so forth. That is common of other films of the time, I should say. Um, and it's about people smuggling which is a very still a very, very hot topic in Australian politics, um, even in, in recent years, uh, the, the issue of people smuggling. If you want to start a fight at a dinner party in Australia, just bring up that and, and see what happens. Um, however, it, 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 totally suits, it totally suits the background. You know, it's very meaty dramatically. It offers good stakes and all that sort of stuff. Here's the a native dance. That was another trope of cinema at the, at the time. If you ever saw a film set in an exotic location in the, from the 1950s, you know, whether it was Africa or South America, you could pretty much guarantee the heroes would sit down and watch a dance number, which they do. I mean, having said that, this is very interesting to watch. So here we have Ilma 80 meeting Charles Tingle, the romantic comedy, the romantic lead, sorry, I should say, not romantic comedy. I should say, I, I do feel this, sorry to go on about this, but I do feel it's an opportunity missed that... That Rod Taylor should be in love with her, and then and then she should make eyes at Bud Tingwell, and Rod Taylor should get jealous. Anyway, that would just don't you think that would be more dramatically interesting? But these two are a very handsome couple. They're very nice. There was no hanky panky on set, by the way. Um, Charles Tingwell was devoted to his wife, and indeed he um, he took a pay cut when he told me when he made this film so that his wife could accompany them on set, which is just very very sweet.
Charles Tingle had been in a few films before this, actually, by the way, which is what he had. He was the lead in a um, a film called Always Another Dawn by the McCready Brothers, which came out around 47, and he was also in Into the Straight. He sort of played a few wastrels too in films like Bitter Spring, so he, he didn't just play the handsome leading man parts, he also played character parts. Um, and like I said, he had that good role in The Desert Rats. Um Tingwell popped up and, you know, he was a very busy actor on radio and, and stage in Australia. But eventually the work started to dry up uh, when the radio industry went into free fall after TV came in. TV came in Australia in 1956. There weren't quotas to ensure Australian drama. So what happened is audiences divert, deserted radio for TV, but there weren't the jobs that the actors could go to. So a lot of actors had to head overseas and Charles Tingwell went to England. And he became a, I guess you could call a TV star on a medical show called Emergency Ward 10. I think, oh gosh, I think, I think that's the name. Um, a long-running medical show that was very popular. I and mean, he was sort of like, like a spunky doctor on it. However, what happened was he was cast as a police officer in the Miss Marple films with Margaret Rutherford. Some of you may remember them. They're really fun. Not, you know, she, Margaret Rutherford isn't like a truly accurate Miss Marple, according to how Agatha Christie did, but the films are lots of fun. And um, Tingwell plays the sort of detective who was always being exasperated by Marple, even though Marple solved the case that he couldn't do it. And Tingwell was considered too, thought, was worried that he would come across as too young. So what he did was he put on weight for the role and he admits this in his in his memoirs that he could never get it off again. So, so he went sort of overnight from being a leading man to um, do a character actor. But he became a very good character actor. He, he mostly did TV and theatre in England, but pops up in a few films like um, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. I think he gets killed in that. And then he came back to Australia in the 70s when the uh, industry industry revived and he was uh, very, very busy as a director and an actor. Really, really nice man. You never hear anyone say anything bad about Bud Tingwall. These two, yeah, like, like oh, they're very, it's just, it's, it's really weird to see Charles Tingwall being handsome because I grew up knowing Charles Tingwall as this chubby, chubby sort of guy, avuncular, sort of everyone's favourite uncle. And they, but these two are very nice, very nice couple. And what Adie hadn't done much acting; she'd done a bit of amateur theatre, but they got along very well. I, I think it's because, from all accounts, filming of this was very smooth because they were all mates with each other. They all knew each other and they all got along. Um, Lee Robinson and Chip Rafferty said, who wrote the film, they said they wrote they wrote it with the actors in mind. So. Charles Tingwell's role was written especially for him. Rod Taylor's role was written especially for him. Reg Lyers and Lloyd, Lloyd Burrell. So everyone was, you know, working. And also there's something, there's also when you're making a movie, you can have great camaraderie, but there's, I think there's a special camaraderie when you're on location together. And they would have been, you know, on Thursday Island. So it would have been this massive adventure. And, and you can just imagine the island would have been excited, you know, although it was probably like, like most films, you know, the first, the first week's exciting and then they become annoying. But what, you know, they're making a movie and all these people on the, on the show business folk come in and, and make a movie. So you can imagine that the island really, really got behind it. And that's what, that's what I've heard that it did. That, you know, they really like, you know, they weren't annoyed. And, and so everyone sort of got along. Also, it was a, it was a very a collaborative experience by all accounts about what happened. Because Lee Robinson didn't have a lot of experience with drama. Uh, and he knew it, and he was, I think he was a bit self-conscious about it, you often hear him in radio, and to be honest, you can tell when you watch his films, I think he was a better producer than director, 
because when it comes to talking with actors, I don't think he was that great. And the pacing of his films are often often not terrific. I mean, they always look great and they're always set in interesting locations and they have good things about them. But I think just as in terms of just in terms of dramatic construction, he wasn't he wasn't the best. Uh, and that's why, like, as his career went on, he drifted more into producing. Like, he effectively gave up directing from the from the sixties, but he went on and had a very successful producing career, particularly of TV um, shows like Skippy and films like Attack Force Z. But that, but, that, but but it kind of didn't matter when Chips Rafferty was so heavily involved, and uh, and Lee Robinson said that the actors sort of directed each other, and that was confirmed to me by Elmer Ady and also Charles Tingwell that they said they all had a bit of a direct, you know, <laughs> like like they all sort of everyone sort of had a go, and and it sort of that that sort of attitude maybe that can end disastrously wrong. I mean, normally the director has to be the one in charge on a set, otherwise things can get out of control and people can mutiny, but they were all friends, they are all getting along, and Lee Robinson was happy to step back and let Chips Rafferty direct his own scenes and Charles Tingwell direct his own scenes. And I think it paid off in the case of Ilma Rainey. She said it was fine. She said, she said Charles Tingwell was a great help, and so was Chips and their scenes together and Rod. Uh, also, they had a bit of tinkering of this of the script of the script and actors and um, Ilma told me that, um, that she remembered Charles Tingle and Rod Taylor rewriting a scene the night before just having a go. So it was all a bit laissez-faire, all mates chipping in together and by all accounts, no one particularly minded, you know, uh, I think it, I think that sort of thing can go disastrously wrong. I do know later on in Rod Taylor's career, for instance, he, uh, he decided to rewrite scripts and not always to the, for that, for the benefit of the film, like um, Charles Tingwell and Rod Taylor later acted together in *The High Commissioner*, which was based on the novel by John Cleary, who I mentioned before, because he worked with Lee Robinson in World War Two. The Australian industry was very, very small and very incestuous. Anyway, some of you may have seen that film. It's a 1968 film directed by Ralph Thomas. It was shot in England, and there's um, where Rod Taylor plays a detective, Scobie Malone who later went on to be the hero of a series of novels by Cleary. Uh, and the plot is Scobie Malone has to go to Australia to arrest the Australian High Commissioner for murder. And the Australian High Commissioner is played by Charles uh, Christopher Plummer. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting off topic a bit. But the opening scene has Rod Taylor arrest Charles Tingwell. Charles Tingwell playing, who was, the film was, the scene is set in Outback Australia, but it was actually shot in... Um, in, in a studio in, in London. And, it, and then I've got to say, the art department do a great job. And it's kind of funny because to compare it to this, because um, Charles Tingle was in his post Miss Marple eating phase and, and looks, it looks very disreputable. And Rod Taylor is this swaggering detective who goes and beats, beats up Charles Tingle. Um, but, Charles Tingwell, Bud Tingwell, that, that was his nickname, Bud. He told me that um, Rod asked him to do it under the old pals act. Um, but Rob was a very good on-screen fighter, so you know he didn't actually hit him. But he said, but apparently that scene was written by Rod Taylor himself, which annoyed uh, John Cleary because he said it wasn't consistent with the characters he envisioned him. Now I've totally got enough track there talking about the High Commissioner, but it does have some tie-in because it was a uh, Rod Taylor, Charles Tingwell um, filming. So there they all are on the boat. I think I've said I think I've said pretty much. Yeah, you know, the whole film is shot on location. Sorry if I repeat, repeat myself. There may have been some inserts done in Sydney, pick up some pickups, sorry, later on. But um, but Lee Robinson and Chips Rafferty went big on on building building sets. 
Thursday Island, the uh, the big industry in Thursday Island was Perling, which is the subject of of this. I think it was when the, when this film was made, Perling was a bit on the decline for a couple of reasons. It was competition from other areas, and also um, it, 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 the pearls had gone a bit a bit out of fashion. But during its day, it was a considerable, consider quite a considerably big industry, and it was quite a thriving area. I think today, I mean. TI, as it's called, Thursday Island, is, is pretty, still pretty quiet, but it's a very important part of the region. It's the administrative head of the Torres Strait. It's also, um, they have a little bit, fair bit of tourism, and they still do, still do pearling. It was, it was a very multicultural part of Australia for a long time, probably more multicultural than the mainland Australia, because you have a lot of islanders and you had a lot of uh, non-Europeans, which was unusual during the White Australia policy. Big Japanese population. And apparently during uh, World War II, the island wasn't bombed by the Japanese because uh, the Japanese thought that there might still be Japanese on the island. Whereas uh, Horn Island, which is nearby, I think that's where the airport is, um, that was that was bombed incessantly. Um, yeah, everyone's smoking. <laughs> That's, how's that for 1950s? Um, now, this underwater footage, I believe this was shot at Green Island. So for whatever reason, I presume that the quality of the water or maybe it was just too unsafe to actually film underwater stuff on the Torres Strait itself. So instead, they went to Green Island, which is a, another beautiful part of the world. It's not in the Torres Strait, though. They make it look like it is. Um, Green Island is just off the coast of Cairns, which is near the Great Barrier Reef. And that's a tiny little island that you can sort of walk around with relative ease. Um, and that's, yeah, that's where they filmed all this underwater footage. Ross Wood shot was the cinematographer, but the underwater footage was directed by a guy called Noel Monkman, who, um, a really, really good photographer, cinematographer, I should say, did a lot of documentaries, also worked in features, directed two feature films. One was called Typhoon Treasure from 1938. The other one was called The Power and the Glory from 1940 or 41, I think it was. It's like a World War II propaganda movie, which stars young Peter Finch. Peter Finch is in it. I haven't seen Typhoon Treasure, but I've seen the Peter Finch one, and it's a lot of fun. It's like really silly, but it's fun and fast-paced, and you sort of go, oh, why didn't you direct more of Noel Monkman? But I don't know, maybe you wanted to and just didn't get around to it, or maybe it was just too easy to... It was easier to keep working as a um, just as a cinematographer. And he, he liked to go to exotic places. Well, for lack of a better word, not exotic if you live there, of course. Um, just unusual, out-of-the-way places for... Unusual out of the way for city folk, I should say. Sorry. I, I always got to be careful using words like exotic because, you know, for the people who live on Thursday Island, you go, well, it's not exotic to me. It's my home. And there's Chips himself getting caught. And that was really Chips. He went down there into the sea. That's not like a mock-up. He actually, he went down there with some, there's some contemporary newspaper articles on the making of this movie, which sort of said, yeah, they, the, act, the actors themselves had to go down there, put the helmets on. And, uh, and they would say that there would often be sharks hanging around, so you'd have one or two people with um, spears there just in case anything got out of control. Um, Thursday Island hadn't been on screens uh, very much. Disappointingly so, I think, because it's a beautiful part of the world. It's really interesting. It's become more in fashion, oh, I guess I could say fashion, in recent years, There'd been a couple of TV series set there, in particular one actually called The Straits, which was on the ABC a few years ago. However, this is one of the first actually dramatic films set there. 
There was a 1937 Australian film which was set there. It was called um, Lovers and Luggers, which was about the pearl trade. That was directed by Kenji Hall, um, who was probably Australia's most consistently commercially successful director. He directed a whole bunch of feature films in the 30s and 40s. Um, he was still around in the 1950s, though, and, and he couldn't get a job directing features. That's that's how kind of bad things were. I think, he's always, I think part of him was always maybe a bit annoyed that Lee Robinson got to direct feature films, and when when he when Kenji Hall wanted to direct, but he didn't anyway. But I could I don't know. I've just only heard that I can't prove it. But anyway, yes, Kenji Hall made a film called Lovers and Luggers, which was a sort of um, a little bit similar to this adventure tale. Only that was pretty much all shot on a studio back lot in Sydney, um, and they did some underwater footage, which was shot in North Sydney Pool. Um, they did do some second unit work up in Thursday Island, but they, they didn't send the actors up there. And Lovers and Luggers stars uh, an American actor called Lloyd Hughes. They brought out an American actor to star in it to try to get the film to, you know, maybe help the film internationally. Um, and Lloyd Hughes is, was a sort of a quasi-name. He was in the 1925 version of The Lost World. But the Australian female lead was called Shirley Ann Richards, who was a, a great actor. Great, well, she I mean, wasn't an amazing actor, but she's just lovely to see on screen. Um, and she later went to Hollywood and had a career under the name of Ann Richards, and you see her in films like An American Romance with Brian Donlevy and um, and Random Harvest with Greer Garson. And I just sort of mentioned that, that Australia had turned out a pooling adventure movie before called Lovers and Luggers. Um, and I think Frank Hurley, the legendary cinematographer, maybe had made a few films up that way. So they had had set some films up there, but it wasn't super, super common, which I think is to the film's benefit, like even now, you know. Um, and this, this film is an invaluable time capsule of, of what the place looked like at the time. The plot was apparently inspired by a real-life murder. I mean, this is what contemporary reports said. I don't know how closely. Um, in Broome, in Western Australia, 1905, a pearl buyer called Mark Liebglid, I hope I pronounced that right, was murdered by two Filipino pearl divers in a Norwegian beachcomber. And they caught them in and executed them. So uh, that inspired this. I mean, I don't know how closely it follows it. I think more likely Charles Tingle and... Sorry, not Charles Tingle. Um, Chips Rafferty and Lee Robinson sat down and went, "Let's make a film about um, pearls. What 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 interesting thing has happened there? Oh, someone got murdered in Broome. I mean, they did pearling in Broome as well. Um, let's let's use that. And so and then they went off and spun it off in the, in their own direction. And really, the plot is also more inspired by other Hollywood movies, I think, than than anything in real life. The original title of the film wasn't King of the Coral Sea. It was King of the Arafura. The sea up that way is, is the Arafura Sea. Um, the Coral Sea is a bit further uh, east. But um, but they decided to change it to King of the Coral Sea on the grounds that more people had heard of the Coral Sea than the Arafura Sea. Of course, in World War II, there was the famous naval battle, the Battle of the Coral Sea, which uh, helped turn the tide of the war in the Pacific. Um, and was also the title of a, uh, a 1959 American film with Cliff Robertson. That's just obscure, more obscure trivia. I don't think any Australian actors are in that. Although, um, i got to say, um, Chips Rafferty sort of routinely popped up in American movies playing as Coast Watchers. He plays one in a film called The Wackiest Ship in the Army with Jack Lemmon and Ricky Nelson. And in, in, 
occasionally in Australia, in American war films set in the Pacific, you'd have these random Australian coast watchers. They did perform a very important role, by the way, I should say. So here's some exciting stuff on the boat with everyone acting. And it's good that Ilmer 80's there helping out. They didn't leave the character behind um, doing the knitting back at home base. I mean, this film is not a uh, undiscovered feminist masterpiece, but it is good that uh, the character gets to be involved and she and she handles it well. The original script was sent to in, sent to a film critic called Kenneth Slesser for his opinion. Now, if that name's familiar, Kenneth Slesser became one of Australia's leading poets. Um, he was also a journalist for his day job, and he, a part of being a journalist, he did a lot of film criticism. And there's a note in the National Film and Sound Archive from Kenneth Slesser to Lee Robinson about the script. But it's sort of included just because it's interesting because you've got Kenneth Slesser who became this big literary figure. You know, his most famous poem is probably Beach Burial. I know that because we had to study it at high school, uh, where he gives script notes to Lee Robinson. And so I will report it in full. Kenneth Slesser on the script says, Of a simple, direct, outdoor Western type, the story seems satisfactory. It hasn't much subtlety, but subtlety is not required. Indeed, it would be out of place. The only criticism I would care to offer is to repeat the old warning given to early Australian films. Don't try to cram in too much local colour for its own sake. The, narr the narrative should come first all the time, and to hell with showing off landscape, horses, kangaroos, koalas, etc., as some of the early films insisted on doing. That's why you must be careful not to emphasise such scenes as the native dance, the old fort, crayfish spearing, etc., beyond their proper proportion in the story. These interludes must appear to come in spontaneously and naturally, and to not have been dragged in just as sideshows in themselves. Otherwise, I think you've got something that could be pretty good in its class. So there you go, script notes from Ken Slesser, Australia's leading poet. Which I do like to bring up, okay, just for a couple of things. A, because even though Kenneth Slesser was a top poet and a film critic for a lot of years, he still didn't pick up the script flaws in this. Okay, maybe, yeah, I just have a few <laughs> differing opinions to Ken Slesser, but, you know, he didn't do anything like, you know, you really should use Rod Taylor's character more. You know, why don't, why don't you make him the villain? Or you should have a few more twists. Basically, his notes consisted of saying, don't put in too many kangaroos and koalas. You know, I don't think, don't know how useful that was as as a, as, a, as notes, Ken. Uh, anyway, but still, I think it's, it is, it's, it's, it is interesting, I feel. Um... It's a, yeah, I think I've, I've talked about the color issue. It's a shame it wasn't in color. The budget didn't extend to color. If the film had been in color, the film uh, stock would have had to have been packed in ice and flown to London or New York to be developed. That's what happened to um, to Charles Chevelle, who made the film Jetta shortly after this. I think Jetta was Australia's first film in color, and he had to go through a really hard time to get that film developed properly. I mean, of course, he did film it in the outback. I mean, the results are amazing. Jetta looks amazing, but it was just a, a really tough effort. And that would have been the case for the King of the Coral Sea. It is a shame they didn't they didn't go. I mean, I, I am sympathetic. Or I just think just this film looks amazing. It would have looked even more amazing in colour and maybe would have had a longer, longer life afterwards. Um, Lee Robinson and Chip Rafferty's third film was called Walk Into Paradise, and that was shot in New Guinea, and they made that in colour. And it does look amazing. However, weirdly, their fourth film, Dust in the Sun, which is set in the Australian Outback, that was shot in black and white. And you're watching, and that, that came out like in 1958, and you go, okay, by that stage, the films really needed to be in colour. 
However, the other films they did, which was The Stowaway and The Restless and the Damned, they were they were in colour. The um the continuity person on this film was called Joy Cavill, and she sort of became an integral part of of the Chips Rafferty and Lee Robinson team, and she eventually worked her way up to producer. Like she worked with them all through the fifties and sixties. Uh, and then stayed with Lee Robinson and became a producer in her own right. She produced films uh, like Dawn, the biopic of, of Dawn Fraser. She's uh, a real behind-the-scenes female pioneer in Australian filmmaking when there weren't a lot of women on crews. Um, Joy Cavill was there and she wound up you know, running the show, being the producer. She also wrote scripts and whatnot. Pretty continuity on this one. There's Charles Tingwell doing something heroic. Good to see. Ilma Aidy told me that she was cast only about, about a week to 10 days before shooting. She said she didn't do a screen test. Uh, she acted a scene, rehearsed it, and they seemed happy. It's kind of odd that they didn't screen test it, but because she had done modelling, they probably had footage of it so they knew how she'd photograph. Um, she said she was nervous, but she said she had had some experience in show business and it was a great help. Um, she said the minute she was cast, they they used her for a lot for publicity. Like, and when you and indeed when you when you read about this film in the contemporary press accounts, there's a bit of publicity about Chips Rafferty, but a lot of the publicity is about Elmer Aidy, and like the person who had probably done least. You know, there's a little bit on Charles Tingle, a little bit on Chips, but it was about her. I think it was just easier to get to be blunt pictures of a pretty girl in, in the magazines. They like to run those sort of pictures, um, but she does a very good job. She's very natural, and I wish she'd done. I wish she'd done more acting. She said, she said there were only two hotels on the island when they made this. There was the Royal, where most of the cast stayed, and another one where all the crew stayed. And she didn't. Uh, she knew Chips Rafferty slightly, uh, and she she knew Bud Tingwell slightly, and she knew Rod Taylor's first wife called Peggy because she was a model. Too, and I guess they all sort of knew each other. There you go. It's a flirty scene between Charles Tingle and Elmer, and with Rod looking on, smiling. No, you should be jealous. Sorry, you should be jealous. And Rod joking with one of the locals. And Chips Rafferty smoking. Sometimes stressful watching actors smoke in old time films because you know how dangerous it is. And even at the time, they're just figuring that out. Chips Rafferty. Uh, died relatively young. He would think he was in his 60s. He died, uh, I think it was 1971, after he made Wake in Fright of a heart attack. He um, he outlived his wife. He and his wife didn't have any kids and she dropped out of a heart attack. I think they liked to drink and a smoke. It might not have been what killed them, but uh, you know, I'm not across their medical history. But, you know, it is, I don't know. It's just something I have when I watch old movies and you see everyone smoking, you know, they die young. You're like, oh, don't, don't. You should try try something else. Mind you, uh, Rod Taylor and Charles Tingle both smoked and they both lived relatively long lives. But Lloyd Beryl didn't. Like, he's not in this scene. But like I say, he died when he was only 31 years old, which is really, really young. Really, really young. That's a real tragedy. I mean, of course, it's always sad when someone dies, but I just think someone of Lloyd Beryl's talent, like, he's really not well known these days. I mean, he was famous for radio, like I've said. He, he never quite had a famous film performance to um, to immortalise him, but he's a scene stealer. 
Um, you see him in, you know, in this, he's, he's great value and he was great in His Majesty O'Keefe and he's great in Long John Silver. Um, and he, you know, in England, he would have been, you know, one, one assumes been able to find roles which suited his, his talents. You know, there's always a market for a very talented character actor. Um, but yeah, he passed, he passed on. Anyway. Um, Lee Robinson knew Rod Taylor from radio, and he said that uh, Rod had been a guest star on Chips' Story of the Outback, which would star Chips Rafferty. He said that the uh, the main actors on that show were Chips, Rod, and an actor called Alan White. Alan White's not that well-remembered today, but he was a leading actor at the time, very highly regarded, and he went to England to pursue his career. Rod also recorded a pilot for a radio show with Lee Robinson, called The Winner. Uh, it didn't go to series, but it was a boxing story, uh, which starred Rod, who, who played the boxer. And uh, it also starred a real-life boxer called Tommy Burns, who fans of Australian film may remember from being in Sons of Matthew. He played Michael Pate's brother, and one of one of Michael Pate's brothers in Sons of Matthew, and he had a bit of an acting career. Incidentally, just some other random trivia connected with the incestuous to the Australian film industry at the time. Another actor who was in Sons of Matthew was called Ken Wayne. He was a contemporary of all these guys, Rod and Charles Tingwell. And Ken Wayne was very good at American accents. And in particular, he was, I think he was on a radio show called Night Beat, he played a detective. And Charles Tingwell told me that, Lee, Lee Robinson told me that Rod Taylor's role was written expressly for Rod Taylor. But Charles Tingwell told me that Ken, after a few, Ken Wayne had a few beers and he said, no, nah, that role was originally meant for me and Rod got in under, under, under me. Uh, I have no idea how that's true. Just a little bit of scuttlebutt. I mean, it may have been the case where, look, look Lee Robinson and Chip Strafty are writing this film. Of course, Ken Wayne and, and Rod Taylor know them personally I and mean, they're going to be hoping they're going to be cast in it. There's role in it for an American character. And both Ken Wayne and Rod Taylor were good at American accents. Um, and, you know, both are going to host, hopefully be in cast. Uh, however, Lee Robinson told me that, that the role was written expressly for Rod. Incidentally, I think I have mentioned that, that, that the character was made American expressly to appeal to American audiences. So to make the film appear less foreign. They deliberately put in an American actor for that purpose. Um... And uh, and Lee Robinson said there was no way that actually important American actor. You, might, you know, I think if, if the budget had been bigger, maybe they would have flown someone out. I do wonder if maybe that's why they didn't turn Rod Taylor's character villainous, like they like they really should dramatically in terms of dramatic construction, in my opinion anyway, that they didn't want to upset the Americans by making the American the baddie. I actually think if they if they wanted to do that, then maybe they should have turned uh, Charles made Charles Tingle's character the American. And had Rod be the Australian and had him be evil. Anyway, uh, that's just how my mind works watching these sort of things. But here, here it's weird. You've got you've got Rod Taylor and Chips Rafferty out doing heroic stuff, and you're like, why why don't you get Charles Tingwell to do it? Charles Tingwell's in the movie. He's meant to be the leading man. He's meant to be the hero. And they've got Rod Rod doing it, doing all the suspenseful stuff. I mean, he's good at it. Do not get me wrong. It's just it's just a bit odd. Or I shouldn't keep going on about it. Uh, how, so the the uh, the actor was American, but as Lee Robinson pointed out, it wasn't. It doesn't stick out like a sore thumb that he's American because after World War Two, 
a lot of Americans had surfed in the Pacific and gone to Australia, and a lot of them stayed. A lot of them stayed on, you know, especially in the in the islands. So it's not like I think you buy it when you watch this movie. You totally buy that he's American, that that an American character would be there. It completely makes sense. Um, apparently, Lee Robinson told me that Rod told him that when Rod first went to Hollywood, he read a part for the director Ilya Kazan, you know, from East of Eden and all those great movies and theater shows. And Rod used his Jake Gennaro accent when he auditioned. And Ilya Kazan said he could normally spot where an actor was from on the basis of his accent. But in Rod's case, he couldn't pick between Boston and Connecticut. So I don't know if that story true. Uh, but, but yes, Rod was was well known and respected for his American accent, which proved him very, very handy. Another story from the set that Lee Robinson said was that um, that Rod used to wear basketball lifts to build himself up a couple of inches so he didn't look like a midget against Chip Strafferty. Chip Strafferty was six foot five, I think. That, yeah, he was a very, very tall guy. And the problem was, if you if you're in a scene against him, often the actor you know, looked like a real like a real midget. Uh, I mean, often people you know tell those stories about what you know with Alan Ladd, you know, who was a diminutive star, and that if you were in scenes with Alan Ladd, they had to dig ditches for the women or men who were with him, so Alan Ladd didn't look too tiny. But in Chip Rafferty's case, it was it's sort of the upper way around. You sometimes had to dig a ditch for Chips Rafferty so he didn't look too big. Apparently that happened on Eureka Stockade. I haven't had this confirmed. I only heard this story that um, Chips's co-star in the film Eureka Stockade was quite shorter than him, his, his romantic co-star, and so they had to dig a ditch for him to do romantic scenes with her. And um, and Bud Tingwall apparently said to Rod Taylor, you got to watch out when you're working with Chips because... He doesn't, you know, he doesn't just look tall. He makes you look short. You got to watch him, you know, you, you know. And so, and Lee Robinson said when he watched Rod through the lens day after day, he seemed to creep up gradually on trips until he was just about at his ear level, close enough to be able to play two shot scenes with him. And and Lee Robinson was going, "What the hell's going on? That's really weird." And then one day he found out that he had these basketball boots, like those Reebok thing, you know, Reebok shoes, and they were packed with paper. For about two inches, so so he um so he so when you see Rod Taylor, some in some scenes apparently he's got um his boots stuffed with paper to make him seem taller. Probably not against this scene, Lloyd Burrell, who was who wasn't as tall as Chips Rafferty. Anyway, but that just shows also Rod Taylor's competitive competitive edge. But here you go, got get him doing heroic stuff when really Charles Tingle should be doing it, confronting. Lloyd Beryl. Now this is a big fight scene. Rod Taylor was a really good on-screen fighter. He boxed. He boxed um, for fun, and he was a very good fight. When he ever did a, did a fight scene, he did it really, really well. In something like, you know, films like Dark of the Sun, or even The Man Who Had Power Over Women. Not one of his best-known films, but he does a really good fight scene in that. And here he's uh, brawling with poor old Lloyd Burrell, who does not look as good. I mean, like, Lloyd Burrell was a really good actor, but you watch this scene, like, Rod's just pummeling him. And occasionally, yeah, there you go, Lloyd has, gives him a punch, but just doesn't look convincing. Whereas, you know, Rod, Rod's doing most of the act. There he go, bang! You know, like, in reality, you get the sense this fight would last five seconds. And, again, again okay, sorry, I'm going on about it again. Really, this fight should be between Rod and Charles Tingwell. Anyway, but he was a very good on-screen fighter. He choreographed it himself. Uh, people who worked with Rod Taylor said whenever there was a fight scene, he always got 
he always got excited and he liked doing them and he um and he would he often choreograph them and the directors the directors would say no it was, it was great because he just knew how to do it so well so he really he really liked he really liked his fight scenes um and a, a, according to a contemporary press report apparently um Lloyd Burrell conked out Rob with a punch but I kind of feeling that maybe that wouldn't happen as <laughs> it was accidental Okay, and they're kicking out, getting rid of Yusep, who is the coloured baddie, which is a shame. Uh, the most common still from this film is actually from this scene, which is sort of a shirtless Rod patching himself up after a fight with Chips Rafferty sitting on a desk talking to him. Um, I've seen that still a lot. It just for whatever reason, it tends to be the most common still from the movie, probably because uh, Rod Taylor's in it. Here comes Elmer 80. Again, oh, it just would have been better if... If he'd been in love with her, don't you think? Okay, all right. Anyway, okay, they, I should talk about the budget. Um, the cast cost £1,500 out of a budget of £25,000. Um, Lee Robinson said Charles Tingle and Rod Taylor were the highest paid. They were both paid £40 a week, although Tingle took a pay cut so his wife could come in on the set. The other actors were on about £20 to £25 a week. Uh, just to give it some context, the top radio actors could earn up to about £100 a week. So Charles Tingle and Rod Taylor were probably taking a pay cut to make this. Um, Robinson and Rafferty didn't take a salary for the movie. They were on £15 a week expenses, and but of course they took a share of the profits. The crew costs were about £5,200. The highest paid crew member was the cinematographer, Ross Wood, on £35 a week. Deservedly so. Very good, did a very good job. The... Um, the film was a financial success. According to Lee Robinson, it made more than twenty, more than its budget in Australia alone and more than its budget in England alone. He said Lee Gordon, the promoter, who was later became known for um, working with Johnny O'Keefe, he wrote him a cheque for $25,000 for the American rights. So they did, quite, they did quite well out of it. This is one of Lee Robinson's favourite films out of everything that he made. He had a very long career, made a lot of movies. He said... He, but he really loves this one because it was his first film with any sort of budget and it was successful. He has a lot of fond memories of it. The production unit arrived on Thursday Island in July 18th, 1953. They sort of took over the place. Um, they had to hire, they, they fully occupied the two available hotels. They hired vehicles and boats. They had to arrange the importation of extra electricity and tobacco. They had to arrange for extra tobacco to be brought in because of all these, these camera crew. Um, Ross Wood, the DAP, um, converted a section of the hospital into a dark room, and they had a they had a good old and they had a good old time. Very collaborative, a lot of fun. And this is Frances Chin Soon, a nursing sister at Torres Strait Hospital, in this sort of second biggest female role. Again, it's a, a familiar type, the inverted commas tragic native girl, close inverted commas. The editor was called Alex Ezard, and he was back in uh, back in Sydney. And he wrote to Lee Robinson during the filming, going, "Rodney is doing a grand job. You have a find in him very natural. His sequences with Chips definitely establish the strong friendship which you desire." Um, apparently, uh, Thirst Island is very small. Uh, there's there's a lot of debris around still from World War Two. It had that kind of feel about it. Um, they didn't have any locals in the film crew, apparently. 
They would, um, but some played small roles and they crewed on the boat in the Pearling Lugger. When the um, in on August the twenty second, the units transferred to Cairns. Not all of them went on to Cairns. Uh, Rod Taylor didn't go, uh, but some did. Chips Rafferty, Robinson, of course, Ilmer Aidy, and Bud Timor. They went to Cairns and then transferred to Green Island for shooting the underwater footage. Um, and then the film wrapped up. Um, Lee Robinson said when they all flew back from Thursday Island, they were all celebrating and they got on them, they cracked open the beers and they had a bit too much to drink. Oh, there's Elmer already been kidnapped. It's always good for the third act. Uh, yeah, they all got on the beers and the pilot refused to take them. I mean, you can imagine what that would have been like, like a film crew that made a movie that shot the bulkhead, they'd had a great time. They just like unwind, letting off steam. Um, Rod Taylor was a notorious drinker, really liked to drink. Most Australian actors of the time did. Uh, Charles Tingle, not so much, but people like uh, John Million and John Hewitt and Grant Taylor and so on, they uh, they really liked to, <laughs> liked to drink. It was a heavy drinking culture at the time in the 1950s. And part of the reason was... I guess it was just it was just a strange culture, but also in the acting circles because they would act in radio during the day and in between jobs they would go to the pub uh, in between. <laughs> and so as Charles Tingwell told me, he goes, some actors you could notice a multiple, uh, what was his expression, um, a change in efficiency after lunchtime. <laughs> That's how he diplomatically put it. And Rod Taylor, did, he did develop a drinking problem. In later life, he got it under control eventually, but um, for a while there, he, he did it far too much, and that was common with a lot of male actors and female actors of his generation. They were they were a hard drinking bunch, and it resulted in quite a few of them uh, meeting uh, having early deaths. Um, it was a big thing in England too, as well. That you know that that generation. I mean, not that actors don't like to drink now, but it it, just, it was a cultural it was a cultural thing. So anyway, so when they got all on the booze on this plane flying home from Thursday Island, and the pilot refused to take them, but eventually Lee Robinson persuaded them otherwise. Shooting was uh, completed by November 1953. Um, during post production, uh, Ilmer Aidy's voice was post synced by June Salter who was a radio, considerable radio actor at the time. She later went on to become a, um, a very, very recognised face on TV. She was on The Restless Years for a young time, a long time. That was a soapy. Um, Lee Robinson said there was a precedent for this. Uh, an actor called Rosemary Miller had post-synced Jeanette Elphick on Phantom Stockman. That happened sometimes. So I think, my, like, I mean, it's hard for him already, but I think in part why she's so affected is, is her performance was post-synced by, by another actor. Um, Lee Robinson said all the minor male roles were post-synced by John Mellion. John Mellion, a really excellent actor, contemporary of Rod's, uh, perhaps best known for playing Crocodile Dundee's best friend. He was married to June Salter at the time. Talk about boozers. He was a huge boozer. You could see, he's one of those you could see it on his face. A very busy, a very, very talented actor. Um, you might know him also from such films as On the Beach. He's probably annoyed he wasn't cast in this movie as well. He and Rod Taylor later acted together in a late 1970s Australian film called The Picture Show Man, where John Million had the lead and Rod sort of played the antagonist. Um, in that film, Rod played an American as well. It was weird. In Rod Taylor's career, I think he only made a few films in Australia and most of them he didn't play an Australian. 
he plays an American in this. He plays an American in The Picture Show Man. He also plays an American in a film called On the Run, which was made in 1982. It's, not a, it's a little known thriller. Uh, but however, he did play an Australian in Welcome to Whoop Whoop, which I think was his last great role. He did play an Australian in non-Australian movies. He played one in The VIPs with um, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, and he also played one in The High Commissioner. Um, but that, again, not uncommon at the time. Like I say, most Australian actors had to play non-Australian parts. The looping was done in December 1953. Apparently one or two days of pickups were shot. Then they cut it together and they did uh, test screenings. The film had its world premiere in on July 17th at, on Thursday Island at the Open Air Taurus Theatre. Um, and, you know, it was, the, it was the big night to come and see it. According to contemporary reports, spectators comprised of Malays, Chinese, Singalese, Melanesians, Torres Strait Islanders, Aboriginals and Anglo-Saxons, wearing a mixture of sarongs, evening gowns and lap laps. One journalist described it as possibly the most polyglot audience ever to see a world film premiere. And the film was released on the Australian mainland starting on August 12, 1954, at the Majestic Theatre in Melbourne. To promote the film, there was a talent quest held to find a queen of the Coral Sea, and they had a queen for each state, with, a, with the prize being a screen test and a holiday on Thursday Island. So that's good. That's good showmanship. So here we go, the big climax, with Charles Tingwell and Chips Rafferty uh, going to save the day. So the film was quite popular locally. According to contemporary reports, the Sydney premiere broke the all-time attendance record figures at the Victory Theatre. Don't know how true that is. Johnny Ray, the singer, was visiting Australia at the time he was touring the country, and apparently he tried to get in to see the film, but he couldn't get a seat, so he had to sit on the stairs. I've seen a photo of that. <laughs> it's like it's like weird, don't it? Johnny Ray, who was like a big pop star at the time, uh, this is around the time he was in like there's no business like show business, and he's sitting on the he's sitting on the, he's sitting on the stairs watching this film. Imagine being quite annoyed. You go, oh, I'll go see this Australian film. There'll be heaps of empty seats, and he has to sit on those stairs. But maybe they they took a photo just for publicity purposes. And apparently in Adelaide, there was a South Australian queen of the Coral Sea, Jill McEwen, who won the, the South Australian contest. Uh, she did an appearance and all these people turned up and the crowd spilled over the footpath and disrupted traffic on Rundle Mall, calling the, causing the police to step in. Look, I don't know how true that is, um, but it made the papers. I guess it was maybe a just particularly slow day in Adelaide that day. Um, Lee Robinson said the film tripled its costs in about three months which is pretty good, good work. Um, most of the local reviewers gave the film cautious praise. They all pretty much all said it was better than The Phantom Stockman, and they said the photography was amazing, which it is. Both things are very true. Um, they did snipe at things like the acting and the script and the pacing. Um, no one gave it an unconditional rave that I've been able to find, which, again, you know, it's not that's not hard. I think, I think the acting's, acting's really good, but people would whinge about the acting i think the acting is, is very very solid i i do think the scripting could have been fixed relatively easy but as i said well, no i keep going on about that um the overseas reviews are pretty good variety described it as an okay native pick for spots where the patrons aren't too particular about screen entertainment with the strongest appeal for box office away from the keys however doubtful for the u.s the acting won't have much the audience applauding photography is first class the english reviews are better this is all quite exciting. Spear guns on Ireland. This all would have been on, on Green Island, this stuff. 
Um, the film was distributed in Britain by Associated British Pathé and was eligible for a British quota. Uh, Rod Taylor was so excited by his experience working on the film that he wrote them an original screen treatment after when he came back from this. Uh, and that film, I talk about it in my biography, it was about a retired widowed sea captain and his two sons who live in a fishing village. And then this woman comes along and ruins it by seducing the younger son. But anyway, they get rid of the woman and, the, and all the brothers walk off in the sunset together. It's a very blokey story, kind of like this one in a way. Just interesting that Rod, Rod was so excited by making it, he thought, oh, I'll, I'll do it myself. That film was never made. Um, neither were a couple of other films that um, that were commissioned off the back of this. The, the next film that Robinson and Rafferty made was called Walk Into Paradise. And that was uh, that was a co-production with the French. Because after this film did well, they got confident, but they got a bit too overconfident. They attract they raised money to make three movies. They raised a hundred thousand pounds to make three films at thirty thousand pounds each. And the investors really responded well. I've been through the uh, papers in the National Film and Sound Archive. And people would write in going, I really support you. Here's my money because I really want you to make an Australian film. And, you know, I really want Australia to make movies. And oh, I believe in you, Chips Rafferty. Um, however, they, uh, they bit off more than they could chew. As Charles Tingwell told me, he said, they all do it make two modest movies and some idiot talks them into doing a biggie. The McCready brothers were the same. Those were, the McCready brothers, they made two small films with Charles Tingle and then expanded and went went broke. Um, however, it, fit, and, and it started off okay. Walking to Paradise was very successful. It was made in conjunction with a French company and it was set in Papua New Guinea. It had Chips Rafferty in it. It had some beautiful uh, location work done in New Guinea. And it was the first Australian film to go into competition at Cannes, and it was released in the US as Walk Into Hell and did very, very well. It was shot in English and French versions. Um, and it did good. Uh, they, but also, uh, but the next two films they made with the French weren't successful, and neither was one they just did on their own. Those films were Dust in the Sun, which I've talked about. That had Ken Wayne in Ken Wayne, who complained about being overlooked for Rod Taylor here. He played the lead in that. It was based on a novel by John Cleary. And really, Chips Rafferty isn't in that film. Like, it's actually quite a good story, Dust in the Sun. Um, but Chips Rafferty wasn't in it. He didn't want to do it because he didn't want to play. He had to, His character had to play romance scenes. And while Ken Wayne is a very good actor and he's very good in the role, I just think Chips Rafferty would have been better. And that was a film flopped. It wasn't in colour either. There was some location work, but not enough. And it, and it flopped. And they made two more movies with the French. Um, there was The Stowaway and The Restless and the Damned. And neither of those films recouped their costs. And they lost their money. The company went bust. Um, and I've, in, by 90, they, they'd raised money from all these investors. And a couple of years later, the investors hadn't received any return and they were turning and they were getting angry. Um, you can read letters in Lee Robinson's papers at the National Film and Sound Archive. One devastated investor writes in going, I've given you my life savings, 850 pounds. You know, can you give me anything? And they couldn't. The company eventually went into liquidation. Um, it so it does have a happy ending in a way, maybe not for the original investors. What happened? So um, Lee Robinson was skint, which was a great shame. I think they had the first these first two movies that they made were very sensible and very, you know, they played to their strengths. They got they had Lee Robinson, they had Chips Rafferty in it. We're going to shoot in a location. We're going to not compete with the Americans head on. But then they broke their own rules. I mean, Chip Rafferty isn't in their later movies, and you go, why not? Like you should use it. He was one of their big assets, and some of them they weren't. 
the films weren't particularly Australian in any way, shape or form. In, in their defence, um, television, the films were B-movies. They made it the B-movie market, and by the late 50s, television was, was gobbling up the B-picture market, so it was a bit hard. But it did work out. He just killed himself. <laughs> That's a bit full-on suicide scene. Gripes. Oh, I always forget that that, that scene's in there. Uh, but what happened was how... So, so Chip Shrafty, well, the early 60s, Chip Shrafty was broke. But what happened, and I love this story, is that he got cast in a support role in Mutiny on a Bounty, the um, Marlon Brando version. And what happened, and he plays one of the, the, the people in a boat, on, you know, one of the mutineers in that one. And it's kind of odd because, because like I said, he's, he could only ever speak an Australian accent. But he did look, I guess he had the look of, a, of an old-time sailor. And that film was film, took forever to finish. And so all the actors were on double time and triple time. So and the, and the filming went on for months and months and months. So by the time the filming had ended, Chips Rafferty had made so much money on the overtime that he'd paid off his debts and he was able to buy a block of flats as investment property, which he could gave him financial security for the end of his life. So whenever anyone gave Marlon Brando a hard time, Chips Rafferty would go, I won't hear a bad word about Marlon Brando because Marlon Brando's antics on Mutiny the Bounty enabled Chips Rafferty to bounce back. And Lee Robinson bounced back as well. He kept busy, you know, making making things, producing. His, he, his partnership with Chip Strafferty broke up as producers, but then he, Lee Robinson formed a partnership with John McCallum, who was an actor who wanted to get into producing. And they were really successful. They made the TV series Skippy and Barrier Reef and Boney and Shannon's Mob and also feature films like um, Attack Force Z. Uh, Lee Robinson died, I think, in 2003. Uh, Chip Strafferty died in 1971. Rod Taylor, of course... Uh, the year after this was made, he won a radio competition and, and the prize was a trip to England or America. He decided to go to America. He found the going a bit tough for a little bit, but then he eventually got started getting regular work. He got picked up by MGM. He um, His roles got bigger and bigger, and then he was in The Time Machine and in the TV series Hong Kong, and he had a very, very successful career as an actor uh, over there. And he never came back. He never came back. He, he oh, sorry, he never came back permanently. He came, he'd come back to visit. Um, this bit's a bit odd. You've got Ilmer Aidy and Charles Tingwell making out, and then um, Chips Rafferty pulls him into the ocean. <laughs> I guess you know. Anyway, um, Reg Lye went overseas to to England. Then he came back um, to Australia and, and was always was always working. Um, Lee Robinson told me that um, when Rod Taylor wanted to leave the country to go to America, he his wife wouldn't countersign his passport because their marriage was breaking up. So he said he, he needed a letter saying he was going to come back to Australia to do another film. Lee Robinson said, well, let's do a contract. And they did a, they did a contract where Rod Taylor promised to make a film for Lee Robinson at £40, pounds, £40 pounds a week. And Years later, um, Rod Taylor came back to Australia and did a This Is Your Life. This is in the mid-70s, and Rod was a, was a big Hollywood star. Um, and and he, Lee Robinson suggested, you know, Lee Robinson went to his agent going, hey, how about you come back and make a film? And his agent said, well, his price is $300,000. And he said, well, I've actually got a contract here for £40, so it didn't work out anyway. Um but yeah, so so yeah, so that was King of the Coral Sea. I hope you enjoyed the movie. Really, really interesting film. If you enjoyed it, um, look, Phantom, Phantom Stockman is worth checking out. It's a bit 
Ropey, I would strongly urge you to try to search to look for the documentaries that Lee Robinson made. And also Walk into Walk into Paradise is a is a really interesting, really interesting film. Um, thank you very much for enjoying it, and um, I hope you got something out of this commentary. Sorry if I blathered and whatnot, um, but uh, but yeah, cheers.